Oh God, how grateful we are that you have come and that you are coming again. May we indeed be people of hope because of this promise. And Lord, this morning we pray that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit and by your word. We pray that your light and your truth would draw us to you and warm our hearts to one another. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. Well, good morning. It's so good to see all of your faces. I hope that you had a good Thanksgiving, that you were with people who you love and who love you. How many of you had plans impacted by the snowpocalypse? Any of you? Yes, me too. All part of the memories, I think, of this year. Um, Still, one of my favorite moments of our Thanksgiving this year was for the first time, our kids are 8, 10, and 12. They were actually helpful cooks in the kitchen. They actually made the pies all by themselves. They didn't want any help, and they were delicious. And they did lots of chopping and stirring and keeping things going. And it was a really fun memory for me as they also had all this curiosity about the turkey and the anatomy of a turkey and where the stuffing is going and what's happening and why you baste it and how you cook it. And it reminded me of being a little girl and even remembering, you know, wanting to figure out what the giblets are and what you do with them and why they're included and all those things. And as they were having some of these same memories that I had as a little girl, I was just reminiscing about past and enjoying what was happening in the moment. But also I said to them, you know, it's good that you are learning all of these things because someday dad and I are gonna come to your house and we're just gonna chop and you are gonna be doing all of the cooking. And so it was this uh, Thanksgiving that was a sweet memory of my own past as a child and uh, being with my kids now and anticipating future Thanksgivings. And holidays have a way of doing that, don't they? That we remember um, those things that are part of our past. We uh, delight in sometimes both the tension and the goodness of what's right in front of us, and we anticipate what things will be like. And that's part of also um, this tension of sadness and joy at the holidays, that part of uh, remembering past or part of looking around our table is Um, noticing who isn't there anymore, the people that we long for and that we miss. It's part of both our gratitude for what's in front of us, but also the longings we have, both past and future. And that will be true as we um, come to the Christmas season and to Advent, and it's actually very much about what our sermon is about today. Advent is a time of past and present and future. And today really is um, New Year's Day in the Christian calendar. Today is the very beginning of the new year, the first Sunday of Advent. And here is a church calendar, and it works like the clock at the very top there where you see Advent. This is the very beginning. The church year begins with anticipation. I don't know how well you can see that, but we begin the year with Advent, this time of expectant waiting and preparation for the Messiah to enter in. And then throughout the year, Jesus' life and ministry unfold from there. And part of the work of the church is to retell Jesus' life and ministry, the inauguration of the kingdom of God, until he returns. And so we retell Jesus' life and ministry year after year. You can even see up there All Saints Day uh, toward the top there in November. And last week was the last Sunday of the year. 
And this Advent season, we will be preaching through the Advent wreath. Hope, peace, joy, and love. Those are the four candles of the Advent wreath. And really, what we'll be declaring is that Jesus himself is our hope, peace, joy, and love incarnate. And incarnate means simply taking on flesh. Or as Eric has told us in the past, like chili con carne with meat. Jesus is hope with meat on, is one way to think about it. Hope embodied, hope in the flesh. The incarnation, you can hear that in that we've carried over from our series, our eight-week series on the Holy Spirit, where we talked about um, the Spirit dwells in us. What we remember uh, is that Jesus has come in the flesh, that he is God incarnate. I love how the message translation declares this, the incarnation, talking about Jesus. It says this, the word, Jesus, became flesh and blood incarnated and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. The incarnation is at the core of our Christian faith, and it's this amazing, historic, mysterious event. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, who took on flesh and blood, human flesh and blood, so that people could see and know God, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And not only eternal life, but have a restored relationship with God here and now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Advent, and the Advent wreath actually, is intended to remind us of this gift. And as I've been preparing, I have learned that there are some wonderful symbols that are really tucked and hidden away in the Advent wreath that maybe aren't immediately obvious to us. Did you know that the shape of the circle is meant to remind us that God is eternal, that we are meant for eternal life? And the evergreens of the wreath are meant to point to everlasting life in Christ. And wreaths are often made with different greens, especially in different parts of the world. I didn't know this. That a laurel, even back to the earliest Olympics, signified victory. And it's held in the Advent wreath to remind us of our victory over suffering. Our victory in Christ over persecution. Cedar branches are often used to remind us of the strength and healing that is in Christ. And even the pine cones that hold those seeds of future trees symbolize new life and resurrection. Every bit of the Advent wreath is meant to remind us of God's promises of hope, peace, joy, and love, but also the everlasting life that God has given to us in Christ. It's really a beautiful thing, and I'm looking forward to just being uh, with the Advent wreath uh, for this season. But you know, even as a child, this season of Advent was confusing to me. I remember thinking there was something odd about Advent because we were waiting and anticipating year after years for 2,000 years, something that had already happened in the past. And I wondered, why are we still waiting for Jesus to come in the flesh in a manger in Bethlehem when he already did? But that's because I had an incomplete understanding of Advent. And we actually say to the children every year, right up here on Christmas Eve, when we are surrounded with the camel and the sheep and all the holy chaos that comes with that, we tell them, 
This is why we tell this every single year about God coming into the world in the flesh as a baby over and over again because it changed everything. Nothing will ever be the same. It's so important because God came to earth and took on flesh. But Advent isn't only about what God has done in the past, about when he came in Bethlehem as a baby. Advent is about Christ coming past, yes, but also about Christ coming in the present and Christ coming in the future. Advent is to help us prepare for Christ coming in our lives by his Holy Spirit today, every moment, and to help us prepare as we wait for his return in the future as our king. And that really is our hope that Christ has come. He has come in the past, but he also comes to us now, and he will come again. And because of that, Advent reminds us that we are people who live in the middle. We live in between these two realities when God has come, but we are still waiting for him to come back. We live in between Christ's first and second comings. John Stott, one of my favorite theologians, said this about this reality of where we live. The Bible divides history into this age and the age to come. And the New Testament authors are clear that the age to come of the kingdom of God was inaugurated by Jesus already. So at present, the two ages overlap. We are waiting for the time when the old age will disappear, the period of overlap will end, and the new age of God's kingdom will be fulfilled. So here's a picture of what um, John Stott just said. That we live in this overlap of the two ages. That because of Christ's coming, the new kingdom has begun the age of the new kingdom, and yet we're still waiting for the king, Jesus, to return, to come again. So we live in this overlap between the times, and it's a time of longing and waiting for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And so Advent is a time when we remember that we are people who live both in tension and in hope because of this reality that we live in between the times. So our king is present with us by his spirit now. And yet not all of creation is submitted to his lordship and to his authority. So we belong to the new kingdom and the kingdom of heaven and the king of heaven, but we live here in the kingdom of earth. It's why Christians have often identified as exiles. We have this dual citizenship, and it's challenging. There is tension in being people who live in this age and in the age to come who live in this world, and who also are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And that's really what today's Advent verse is about. And you heard uh, Laura and Becky read it. It's this from Romans 13. And do this. We'll talk about what that is. Understanding the present time. Understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because your salvation is near now than when we first believed. You can hear the past and the present and the future of this verse. We're told to be aware of our present time, this in-between time, which is about the past. The hour has already come. Jesus has come. Wake up. 
to his lordship because he's coming back. Your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. He's talking there about the new kingdom, the coming. Over break, uh, little Jed, he's eight, has been working on a, um, a project that's really a past, present, future project in, of his little eight years. And so he has um, made a family tree looking at his past. He's had to collect stories about um, his eight years of life and put pictures with them. And it stirred some really interesting conversations as a little guy thinking about his past and how that influences his present and what is important to him and who is important to him, and how he wants to live his life. And it's helped us think about what does he anticipate for his future? Even a little child has a sense that we are people with past and present and future, and God has created us with intention and purpose for how we live our days. So today's passage begins with this, and do this. What is that about and do this. What is the writer of Romans talking about? Well, this verse, this one verse that we have pulled out, comes at the end of the section of Romans 12 and 13. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open them. This is a really important passage. Romans 12 and 13 is really about the tension between the patterns of the world, of the old age, and the will of God, the kingdom of God. If somebody has a page number for the Pew Bibles, let me know, Romans 12 and 13. So this verse that really kicks off this section of Romans 12 and 13 will be familiar to some of you. Does anyone have a page? 975, 976, 976. So our passage comes at the end of this two-chapter, near the end of this two-chapter section, and it begins in Romans 12, 2, essentially by saying this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you hear the tension of that verse? The pattern of this world, of the place where we live and dwell in this in-between time, is at odds in many ways with God's good and pleasing and perfect will. Tension is part of the reality of living in this in-between time. So here are some ways that he talks about and do this. This is how you live in tension, he says, in Romans 12, 2. You can hear the tension even in these uh, words of encouragement in his commands. Be patient, he says, in affliction. There's some tension. Bless those who persecute you. You can hear the tension. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And then he goes on in chapter 13. He's actually writing to these people in Rome who are under a tyrannical government. Nero, he's a tyrant. And he says in this section, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. In verse 7, he says this, if you owe taxes pay your taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. You can hear the tension. And then I love this in Romans 13. He says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. 
Then if you jump down to Romans 13, after our passage, he says, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. You can hear the tension, the darkness and the light. And then if you jump down to verse 14, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. There is tension everywhere. And in the midst of it is this verse. And do this, understanding the present time. He's saying, be people of the kingdom of heaven. Remember your citizenship while you are here on earth in this overlap time, in this in-between time. While you live in your present here, filled with the Spirit, the King has already come. You live in God's presence and do this. In the midst of that tension, love one another. Love your enemies. Be honorable citizens. Do not gratify your sinful flesh. Do these things because of the time you are in. This time of in-between. The Lord has come. You have a king. Live as such. But also your king is coming back. So live like a resident of the kingdom that you already belong to. And Advent is this time when we acknowledge this tension of being people of the in-between. It's part of our life as people of overlapping kingdoms, and it is a good thing. So here's a definition of tension. It's a strained state or condition resulting from forces acting in opposition to each other. Tension is part of our life. And let me just say, we don't need to go uh, trying to look for tension. I think I'd, I want to not say that. Um, we will have tension simply because of our present time. And I also want to say not all tension is holy tension. What I'm talking about is when we submit ourselves to the king and we submit our ways to the kingdom of God, even when his ways are different than the world that we live in, or when we are awake to the reign of the Holy Spirit in our own self, when it is opposing our flesh and some of our own desires. That's holy tension. When we can recognize that we are people who live in between. So I wonder, where do you experience this kind of holy tension in your life? Is it in your work, in your relationships? It might be here at church for some reason, with your finances. What I want to say is, I think the more that you identify as a follower of Jesus, there may be that you have more tension in your life and increasing tension. And I have spent so much of my life trying to avoid any kind of tension, but I am learning that tension is part of our hope in this in-between time because it means that Christ has lordship over us, that we can actually see the reign of God at work in our lives in contrast to our own flesh and the things around us. So here are some examples of holy tension, and I wonder if you have experienced some of these. When I want to mention something that I did, because I think it will just help me look really good in front of other people, but I feel the Spirit invite me instead to be quiet and to rest in God's love for me instead of seeking affirmation from other people. That is a place of holy tension that is familiar to me. When I'm tired and I have the urge to just go shopping and mindlessly walk around home goods and buy things that I don't need and call it retail therapy, when what my soul really needs 
is to be still with the Lord, to stop striving, to stop consuming and to rest. What I do in that moment of holy tension, to which kingdom I give my allegiance in that moment, is a place where I can honor the king. When I'm alone and no one will know what I do with my body and its desires, when I want to do what I know that I should resist, when I yield to the spirit rather than to my physical urges, that is a place of holy tension. When I contemplate having another drink, when I know I've already had enough, and I sense an invitation from the spirit not to or a command not to, How do I respond to that holy tension between the spirit and my flesh? Will I yield to God's prompt or will I ignore him? So I want to encourage you to celebrate these moments of holy tension where you know those places where there is a difference between what your flesh or what the kingdom of the earth is and what God and what the kingdom of God is calling for you. I want to encourage you to get used to it and even to ask God for more of it. Because I think sometimes we want or we think that the Christian life should be free of tension. But if we are awake, what this passage is saying, if we understand our present time that we live in this overlap, this in-between time of two kingdoms that are in opposition to one another, there will be tension and it's confirmation that the king is at work in us, already making us new. Jesus has come to us now in the present. And we don't only have hope because of what is past or what's future, but today because God is with us in the midst of this in-between time. We as a staff just started a, um, a book club, totally uh, optional for anyone who wanted to do it, and about 10 of us are reading uh, this book. And it's called Reappearing Church, and the subtitle is The Hope for Renewal and the Rise of Our Post-Christian Culture by Mark Sayers. And I want to just say a little aside here. One of the things I love about this book group is that uh, Dave Palmer read the first chapter of this book, and he realized this book is too important for me to read by myself. So he stopped, and he sent a note out, and he said, one hour, once a week, he chose the time. He said, one chapter until the book is done. Does anyone want to join me? Just send it to everybody. And now this gift has been multiplied, and he just felt like, this is too important for me to do by myself. And I want to encourage you the same thing. If God is doing something in you, or you've picked up something, to say, gosh, this would be so good if I could read it with somebody at work or with my neighbor, or with someone who lives in my home. All he did was say, hey, I'm going to do this. Would anyone like to join me? So I want to encourage you to invite people into anything that God is stirring in you. But what's been so great about this book is that it is really diagnosing our culture, our post-Christian culture, and the culture's pursuit really for this tension-free bliss. He calls it the human utopia of perfectibility, that our culture is, you know, really on mission to find uh, the way to live, looking for hope, really, if you boil it down. And here is a quote that I think is helpful. 
He's talking about um, our post-Christian culture. Driven by the belief that people can attain perfection without the divine, faith in God gives over to faith in ourselves. This myth seeks to gain the fruit of God's kingdom, such as justice, peace, prosperity, and redemption, but without the king. People are longing for hope. People are longing for the goodness of the kingdom, for the coming kingdom. It's built into us. We were made to hope and to long for the kingdom. But in our post-Christian culture, we are a people that is refusing the king, even though we long for him and long for hope. So I want to read you... um, what he says about this longing and this myth that people have that we can actually find a uh, tension-free, blissful utopia without the king. He says this, this myth is starting to look weaker than it initially appeared. The gaps between its promises and reality are widening. Its contradictions are being revealed in increasingly plain sight. The growth of loneliness in our culture and social disconnection despite our hyperconnection, a burgeoning crisis of meaning despite our affluence, the increase of social fracture and conflict, the disruptive effect of technology upon our environment, our health and social sphere, the growing threat of full-scale war and nuclear conflict in our multipolar world. We all sense some of this swirl of chaos in our time. What he says is our cultural crisis shows us the consequences of what happened when people try to take over the controls of the world without the king, without the presence of God. But what this whole book is about is this. The failures we see in our societies and our structures and our systems, their inability to truly deliver what our hearts desire, what we hope for, It illuminates their inability to replace God. Our culture is longing for hope. Our culture is actually longing for a king. But we are a people who is turned away from the authority of the king. And so this book, uh, as scripture does, is challenging us to consider this gap as an opportunity for the church to be people who love well, who do this thing like our passage is talking about, to love our enemies, to be people of honesty and hope and joy and peace and love, not only because that's what we were created for, but so that others will see the way of God and to know his love. We have this gift of the king being present with us now. He hasn't only come in the past. He's here with us now. And every single day in this in-between life is one day closer to his return. A time is coming when there will be no more tension, when all that is wrong will be made right, when Eden will be restored, is what Revelation tells us, when Jesus the King will dwell among his people and resurrection bodies. It's what we learned together this summer, and I just want to remind you of this hope, of this future hope. This is what John saw, this vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the front throne saying, Look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for this old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Every day that we live in this in-between time is one day closer to this future. And Advent is a time for us to especially ready ourselves for the fulfillment of this promise and for that hope. And again, not only for ourselves, but for those who are longing for the kingdom of God, who are longing for the king but don't yet know him. And Advent is such a perfect time for us to gather around this table. This is actually the biggest family Thanksgiving meal and table that we could ever imagine. And it actually is a table that declares the past and the present and the future reign of God and the goodness of God. Declares in the past what God has done for us, that he has already sent Jesus, that Jesus took on flesh, his body was broken, his blood was spilled for us that our sins might be completely forgiven, that we would be restored to right relationship with God. But this table is also declaring what is true now in the present, that God is nearer to us, even than these elements that we take into our body, that God has sent his spirit to dwell with us, that we are never alone. And this table is also pointing to this glorious future where there will be no more tension, there will be no more death, when the king will dwell among us. This table says all and celebrates all of that. So pray with me as we come to this Thanksgiving meal. God, you are so good. You have created us a people with a past and a present and a future, and you are in all of it. God, we thank you for what you have already done for us what you do for us in this very moment and the hope that we have because of you, Jesus, our King. So as we come to this table, God, we pray that today you would nourish us for this way, for this present time. Thank you for your great love for the whole world. Nourish us that we might be your people in it. In Christ's name, amen.